All right, if you are just joining us for the first time today, we have been in a teaching series called The Skeptic and the Believer. And we've taken, this would be part five, and I think, I'm pretty sure this will be the last one. Um, with the topic we're talking about today, hopefully this isn't the last sermon ever at Homestead Church, and I'll get there in a moment. Um, but we've taken five weeks to talk about some of the main objections that people have towards Christianity, or towards the Bible, or toward faith. And maybe you've talked to some people in your life that they say, yeah, why do you even believe that the Bible's true? Or why do you believe that God exists? Science disproves that, certainly. And or why do you think that Jesus rose from the dead? Um, why can we trust what the Bible says? All of these things that we've looked at, some of the main objections to why people are opposed to Christianity. So today, we are talking about this one objection that we will hear a lot in our, certainly in our modern day culture. An objection that people have towards the Bible and towards faith and Christianity. And it is this, the Bible is outdated and it is morally irrelevant today. Christianity is old-fashioned, sexually repressed, narrow-minded. It's a narrow-minded view of morality that does not apply in today's world. So this is going to be a sensitive topic today that we're going to talk about. And I'm, I say that to, for a couple of reasons. Sensitive because if there are kids in the room, now I just understand that we're going to be talking about sexuality, what the Bible talks about sexuality. Um, so if you've got a kid in the room, you're like, maybe I'll check out the bakery across the street. We totally understand. We're going to pray in a minute. You can sneak out then. But here's the deal, parents. If you're thinking, oh, my kid is a freshman in, high, in, in college next year. He's too young to hear about sex. No, they're not too young. We've got to start having these conversations. And I, I told my kids throughout this weekend, I told them what I was talking about. And I said, and you cannot leave the room just because it feels weird that your dad's up there talking about sex. So that's what we're going to talk about. I understand that it's a sensitive topic. So you as parents, I want to encourage you, lead the way with conversations with your family. But if it's something that your kids are really young and you want to step out, I understand that. Also, I get that this is a hot button topic that is certainly wrought with conflict in our culture. Um, an election coming up in a few weeks, a couple weeks, and it is human sexuality and the abortion debate and all of these things that kind of circle around this topic are, are conflict starters. Some of you are hoping to get through the holiday season with none of these topics of conversation coming up with your crazy relatives on either side of the spectrum. So I recognize that this is something that brings up conflict. And also I recognize that this topic brings up a lot of um, hurt a lot of shame for some people, a lot of uh, hurt caused by the church on this topic. There has been harm done to people by the church. And so I recognize that. So I want to look at this topic today. And uh, I want us to, as a church, be involved in these conversations. I want us to look at the word of God today. And above everything else, as we talk about this, I want everybody, if you're watching online or you're in the room today, I want to reiterate the heartbeat of this church. And that is this. Everyone is welcome at this church. And we want to point everyone to salvation in Jesus Christ. And then through the study of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, we become more like Christ and we walk together arm in arm, helping each other because we all are broken in some way. We help each other grow in our faith in an environment of love and grace and support and challenging one another. So that's what I want us to do today. Okay, so are we good so far? All right, good. 
It's gonna be great. I know, some, it, feel, it feels weird. Some of you feel like you're having flashbacks when you sat down with your parents and had the talk many years ago. And, um, but here, let's do this. Before we dive in today, I just want to say, uh, take a moment and pray for our message today. Heavenly Father, we take this time and we just commit it to you. These next few minutes that we look into your word, talking about a topic that can bring up so many mixed emotions and conflict and disagreement and more than that, hurt and shame and uh, baggage that people carry from things that have happened in the past. Lord, I pray first and foremost that the feeling in the room would be of your grace and love for everyone. And anyone who wants to try to cast stones today, we recognize we all fall short. And so we come to you humbly and just ask that you would speak to every heart. And, and may your words ring true today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we have a conflict in our world today. We, and you're like, really, just one? We've got a few conflicts in our world today, but one that I'm talking about today and has to do with this series that we've been talking about. In this series, we've looked at the credibility of the existence of God. And we've looked at the truth and the reliability of God's word, the Bible. And we've looked at there's credible evidence that historically Jesus lived and died. And we also believe that there's credible evidence that he rose again. We believe that we can have this relationship with God who created us in his image to have a relationship with him. He created us and leads us to follow him. And he gives us teachings and scripture and standards to help us follow him the way he wants. He gives us parameters in life. He gives us guardrails in life to say, I want you to enjoy your life. So here is some guardrails for how you live in regards to every area of life as well as sexuality. This is, if you're a person of faith or a person who believes in the Bible, this is what we would say. This is the truth. This is what we believe. So the conflict is we have a lot of people that don't believe that. And before we start, you know, pointing fingers at the world or the groups of people that we think are opposed to us, we have this conflict in our own lives, don't we, right? Never, we're not great at constantly and consistently living up to the standard of scripture and morality in our own lives. So we have this conflict in our own hearts, but we certainly see it in our world where this is what's battling against this truth I just talked about. Personal freedom is the ultimate goal. Personal happiness and satisfaction is the ultimate goal in our world. This is what our world lives for where truth is becoming more and more relative based on the individual. And you hear this more and more. You hear phrases like, well, that's not my truth, what my truth is. And so what we're doing is, in any area of life, we're saying, well, what applies to me, what makes me happy or feel fulfilled is what is truth for me. And the world is saying, if it's fine with me, if it's right for me, who has any other business telling me that it's wrong? Certainly, they would say, this Bible that you say is truth, what business does it have telling me how to live my life? Or what business does anyone have telling me what I'm doing is wrong? So the conflict is there. Believers say that there's a standard of truth set by God. And skeptics would say, I don't care what your made-up God and your made-up Bible says. It does not apply to my life. Don't put that morality on me. And both sides of the conflict feel that they are right and that the other side is trying to push them down. Everyone on both sides of this conflict feels that way. Both sides claim to be under attack. 
they'll say, well, my freedom is under attack, or the word of God is under attack, or my belief system in God is under attack. I have a hard time with that. There are countries in the world today where people of faith are actually fearing for their lives. They're fearing that someone will report them and they will get dragged away and either executed or thrown in prison or their families killed in front of them. So I have a hard time with the, we're under attack in this part of the world. People disagree with our beliefs as people of faith. That's okay, that's always gonna happen. It doesn't mean we are under attack. Sometimes you feel under attack because you're just kind of mean-spirited, and I get that in your beliefs, but I have a hard time with that statement of we're under attack. People disagree with us. I think if we handle our beliefs in a way that honors Christ and that actually shows care and concern for other people, you won't run into a lot of the opposition that you are feeling. However, the conflict is there, a very different belief system in what is right for the individual and right for our society. So today, we're going to talk about this, sexuality. What does the Bible say about sex and sexuality? And does it have any moral weight on us today as people of God, as people of faith? And does it have any benefit to the rest of our society? So here's a crazy question. Could it be that God's design for sex is actually good for the individual and good for the culture as a whole. Now, that's what we're going to dive into a little bit. We are going to start with a story in the book of Judges. The end of the book of Judges. Now, I will say hands down, this is the worst story in the Bible. Okay? The worst story in the Bible. I'm going to give a synopsis. It goes over three chapters. Uh, Judges chapter 19, 20, and 21. Um, if you've read it, you know what I'm talking about, and maybe you have never read it, and you're gonna, I'm going to summarize this story, and you're going to be like, that can't be in the Bible. It's in the Bible, and it's an awful story. And again, I'm letting you know this topic is sensitive today, and part of it is because of this story we're going to read. And some of you are like, wow, what's, what's in this thing? I should actually open this up. This is good stuff. So Judges chapter 19, 20, and 21, there is a story. Now, the, a little bit of insight as to what's happening in the book of Judges is this. Um, the Israelites go into the promised land, out of Egypt and out of the wilderness, into the promised land in the book of Joshua. So the jo book of Joshua is right before Judges, and it is when the Israelites are like serving God and worshiping him, and he's performing miracles, and they're taking over the land, and they're establishing themselves as a people, and they're hearing from God, and they're listening to him, and everything's going good. By the end of Joshua, people are starting to compromise in their faith a little bit. And right after that is the book of Judges. There's no king in Israel at this time. They would have judges who would kind of rule over the people and just decide matters of conflict and stuff like that. Um, and so the book of Judges, where things just go off the rails, disobedience, idol worship, more and more people thinking, oh, well, I'm going to pick this morality from this other enemy nation or this God from this other enemy nation. Patterns of immorality that the people of God, you would never think when you're reading through Joshua, you're like, how can it turn so dark and so bad so quickly? And it culminates at the end of Judges. And there's a story starting in Judges chapter 19. There is a man and his concubine. A concubine is kind of like a wife. It's a lady who lives with the dude, but is not officially like has all the rights of a wife. It's basically there. She's there for either his sexual pleasure or to provide more children and more heirs for him. That's what a concubine is. Um, and throughout this story, it is a 
it is an indictment in how culture and even the people of God would view and treat women. Now, when you hear that, a lot of people will, a lot of people opposed to the Bible will say, well, how can you agree with the Bible when it treats women or it has slavery, it has all these other things? This is an example of incredibly dark and terrible treatment of groups of people. And that's not meaning that God condones it. It's in the Bible, not because God condones it. It's in the Bible as a warning to all of us as to what happens when we uh, resist the guidelines that God has for us. So Genesis 19, or Genesis, Judges chapter 19, the man and his concubine. The concubine has been unfaithful and she leaves the man. So the man says, I got to go find this concubine. And so he went to find her to bring her home. And on the journey home, it's a long journey, so it's getting late one night, and they're in a village, in a town, and they're like, we need to stop here because we can't just travel all night. And it's not like there's the Fairfield Inn on every corner. They, they're like, where should we stay? And there's a man from the village that says, okay, you are tra travelers. Come stay at my house. And so the man and his concubine go stay at this man's house. Sometime in the night, a group of men from the tribe of Benjamin come and they start banging on the guy's door and they say, we know you have a man staying in there tonight. Bring him out to us because we want to have sex with him. And the old man in the house is like, please don't do this wicked thing. Don't do this thing. And so the man says, instead, here is my daughter, my young virgin daughter. Why don't you take her and do whatever you want with her? And the man who is visiting with his concubine says, you don't got to do that. Take the concubine instead. So the concubine gets thrown out. This young lady gets thrown outside to this group of men where she is raped and abused and beaten all night long. And in the morning, she is left for dead. And the morning, the, the people are there, and they open the door, and she is dead. They have killed her. So the man says, well, my concubine is now dead. He puts her on the donkey, and they continue on their journey. And they get home, and the man is outraged as to what happened. I don't get that part because you're the dude that opened the door. However, he is outraged at the level of, um, he's shocked by the level of unrighteousness that this wickedness would happen. So the story keeps going. If you think we're done, we ain't done yet. We're basically done chapter 19. Um, the story goes on that as a way to show the tribes of Israel what wickedness has happened, he takes the dead body of this woman, cuts it into 12 pieces, and sends it to the leaders of the 12 tribes as a way of saying this is what happened. So the leaders of Israel get this package in the mail, I guess, and they're like, I, this is terrible. We got to meet. And what kind of wickedness is happening in our nation? So they believe they get together and they say all these men that did this terrible thing were from the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites were 12 tribes from the 12 son, you know, the tribes that came down, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then all his sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. So they all get together and they say, we need, to, we need to pay back the Benjamin tribe, the Benjamite tribe. And so they go to war against the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin. And everyone is killed in the tribe of Benjamin. Women, children, everything is burned and destroyed except for 600 men. So all that's left from the tribe of Benjamin are 600 men. And then the tribe of 600 men, they realize, well, our tribe, this lineage from Abraham is going to end with us because we have no women left for us to have children with. And so our lineage is going to end with us. And the tribe of Benjamin will become extinct, essentially. And the rest of Israel says, oh, you're right, that's bad. And we shouldn't end the tribe of Benjamin just because of this. So we got to find these guys some wives. So then they get together and said, well, when we went to war against Benjamin, there was this village this one tribe village, and this village was Jabesh Gilead. 
And they didn't come help us, so now we're mad at them. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to war with them. We're going to wipe everybody out, all the men and all the sons. And all that was left were 400 young girls, virgin girls, that were left from this village. And they said, problem solved. Okay, men of Benjamin, you need a wife. Here's these 400 virgin girls left from this village. Each of you take one, and that's now your wife. Problem solved. Now you're doing the math in your head, says, well, clearly there's 200 men left. And these other 200 men were like, well, what about us? They all got a wife. What about us? And so they said, huh, how can we solve this problem? Well, there's this festival of, of Shiloh coming up. And part of it is when the young girls from the surrounding villages come and dance as a part of this festival. So 200 Benjamites that need a, a wife, you hide in the woods. I'm not making it up. You hide in the woods. And when the girls come out to dance and you see one that you like, you run out there and you take one and that'll be your wife. And it says if their, or if their fathers or brothers come out and have an objection, if, right, if they come out and object to you running out of the woods and stealing their daughter, you just tell them this is what we have decided is the way to protect the tribe of Benjamin so that they would have a wife. And that was supposed to be explanation enough. Oh, okay. So that's how the book of Judges ends. And it ends with this verse. And here's why I'm telling all of this story in light of what we're talking about today. The last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21, verse 25, it says this. In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So that story is awful, right? Uh, worst story in the Bible. Terrible. And it is an example, and it's in the scripture as a warning to any individual or any culture that says Israel had no king. Israel had nobody to keep them focused on what the word of God and what the commands of God were. And so all the people just did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And it led to chaos. We hear that story and we're like, how in the world could a culture or a group of people make those decisions? And that's the most, I think the most heartbreaking thing is that every one of those decisions in that story I just told you, every one of those decisions, somebody said, this seems like the right thing to do, right? This seems like the right thing to do. What was leading them to make those decisions? I have no idea. But there was a group of people that had no like moral center, no moral compass to guide them, no guardrails of morality and character like God had given them. They threw off all the boundaries and then they were just basing their decisions on whatever seems right or feels right in the moment. It seemed right. And every right decision they made led to a further mess. And Judges is ending with this warning, which applies to them in Scripture, and it applies to our culture today, us as individuals. And the warning is this. When you throw off the guidelines of God and follow whatever feels right or seems right, it leads to moral chaos. And that sounds like our world today. Does it not? Somebody say amen. We doing okay so far? I know you're probably still thinking, I can't believe that was in Judges, that story right there. That leads to moral chaos in our world. And with good intentions, everyone in our world is trying to do what seems right. School districts, school counselors, um, politicians, churches, social services, counselors, parents, teachers, all of these things, college professors, everyone in regards to morality is just trying to do what seems right. 
They're trying to help. Nobody is saying, you know what, let's just try to mess up some more kids, shall we, this week? Nobody's going in with that motivation. They're all thinking what seems right and what is the best thing that seems like the best option. And so we have in our human wisdom are trying to help those who are confused and hurting in regards to sexuality, homosexuality, gender confusion, and more commonly in our culture, the idea that just sex is casual and should be pursued above everything else. It's insignificant and it is just for pleasure. So that is the norm. And everyone's trying to help and trying to give what seems right, and without a center standard of morality, it's just chaos, right? Does that make sense so far? So I want to talk about this. What does the Bible have to say about sex? What does it have to say about sex? God created sex. God is pro-sex. Amen. <laughs> going to need to lighten up a bit here. Amen. <laughs> Adam and Eve, God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. And he recognized it was not good for Adam to be alone. He created woman to be with the man. And his instructions to them were be fruitful and multiply. Amen. And there they were in the garden of Eden. So imagine Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. They're naked. God told them to be fruitful and multiply. It's this beautiful garden. Birds chirping and the babbling brook and if you read the message translation it says you could hear Marvin Gaye in the background playing quietly <laughs> so what was God what do you think God had in mind of course this was the intended thing okay God created sex but also God created sex to be sacred and significant within a committed lifelong relationship. And this is what is taking a hit in our culture. The idea that sex is casual and is just any relationship should turn sexual without any sort of level of commitment. I want to start with Ephesians 5.21. This is talking about marriage. And this will be read a lot in a wedding ceremony or in a sermon about marriage. Ephesians 5.21 says this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This happens in marriage. Unity. So this is not just physical. This is everything in your life. The two become one. Our culture does a, a bad job with marriage, thinking, oh, just try it out. If it works, it works. If not, just try again. And, you know, oh, oh, this is my starter husband. This is my starter spot. You know, it's that casual approach to marriage. That is taking a hit in our culture. And lest we as Christians at any point, and I just want to say this, at any point in this message, if you as a Christian are saying, oh, man, the world, what's with the world? The statistics for divorce, for abuse, for pornography, for any of these things, for a lot of these things inside the church and outside the church are right about the same. Okay, so we, if we ever as Christians want to start throwing stones at the world, we should really clean up our house first. However... This idea in our world is taking a hit that marriage is this connection, this covenant, this lifelong thing, and it happens in every area of your life when you get married. The forever type of unity till death do you part. And sex is the physical act of this unity. It's not an individual thing. It is unity between husbands and wives. The message of this physical act is I belong to you 
totally and completely. The two people have become one united person. And that's not just the Bible that says that. Science points to this as well. In any kind of sexual activity, there are chemicals released in your body. They are pleasure chemicals. This is how we were designed. Another indication that God designed us to enjoy sex. But there's also a chemical called oxytocin, which is a chemical released in the brain during any sexual activity. And it's the chemical that creates a bond. It creates a connection. It creates that mental bond or connection with whoever you are with. So it is not just a casual thing. It is built in brain chemistry that is uniting you to your sexual partner. So there is no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as, oh, it doesn't really matter. It is the uniting of two people, body, mind, and soul, that never separates. Two people completely committed and connected to each other within the covenant of marriage. So I want to talk to the married people for a second. In this topic, this takes work. This takes communication. This is not always just Adam and Eve and the, and the, and the chirping birds and the garden and Marvin Gaye magic, right? This, is, this takes communication. As you are married, you have to know each other and talk to each other. Find out what works, what doesn't work. If there is a spouse who is not interested in sex, you as the other person is not, your goal is to not put demands on them. Like, you got to do this for me, right? Your goal is to what is going on in our marriage, to foster intimacy and unity in every area of your life. Some people will say, well, how often should this happen for married couples? A lot of married couples struggle in this. Talk about it. Talk about it as husband and wife. Talk about expectations or desires or all of these things in the covenant. You see why this is such an important thing to be in a safe, committed relationship? So that you can talk about these things as one committed body, as one committed marriage. I am not going to stand up here as the pastor and say, well, should at least be having sex two to three times a week. Wives, you need to make sure your husbands have sex two, three times a week. I do not want to be the one. I don't want my name coming up in any discussions at home regarding sex, okay? But more than that, it is for you as the husband and wife. It's no good for the husbands to just come in with this expectation of, well, it should be three times a week, right? The expectation is for you to prefer one another. Find out what the other person would want and then work at preferring the other person. That's what we're talking about here. Strive for this intimacy in every area. This is biblical sexuality, what I have described so far. Now, you might not like it that I'm saying this, and you might not agree with it. You might see it as restrictive, that, that there's too many limitations. I understand that. I'm not making up the rules here. I'm just talking about this is when you talk about what the Bible talks about sex and how God designed it, this is what he designed. So I understand you might have serious disagreement with this, and that's I understand that, and that's okay. Because our world is full of different views than what I have described regarding sex. Sexual freedom is sought with whoever, however, whenever I can. It's about me. It's about my freedom. It's about my enjoyment. Don't put your morality on me because this is what I desire. The pursuit of individual freedom and pleasure is the God in our culture. It is the thing that stands in the way of people giving their life to God. Because they are already the God of their life. And that applies in the church and outside the church. 
Now, this unrestricted freedom of sex and sexual desire, it leads to hurt, emptiness. It can lead to drastic hurt and evil in our world. Think about the evil and the hurt in the world that is caused by this unrestricted sexual desire. Rape, assault, all the things we read about in that story in Judges. Rape and assault and harassment and prostitution and abuse and sex trafficking. It's not a person, it's an object. When you have this desire, this sexual desire that is outside of the parameters of God, you start treating people like objects. You are something that I need to get what I want. So now there is pornography, strip clubs, one night stands, all of these cheap counterfeits to the beautiful thing that God designed to be in the covenant of marriage. It is designed for a lifelong enjoyment. Here's what you don't hear a lot in regards to like an, an appetite, a sexual appetite. You think, oh, if I could just satisfy this appetite, then it's going to be fine. Your appetite is never satisfied. You are left wanting more. The appetite comes back stronger the next time. That's how appetites work in any appetite, and especially, certainly, in sexual appetites. And so it takes more to satisfy you the next time. It's like a drug. These chemicals that are released in your brain during sexual activity, like a drug, you're like, ooh, that felt good. I need more of that next time. And then the same amount isn't going to satisfy you the next time. That is why there is all of this. That is why there is no such thing as harmless pornography or innocent lust or casual sex. All of these things are so normalized in our world. And I just got to say, it is a our world today versus the world I was growing up. If you're a teenager, thanks for hanging with me today. If you're a teenager, I know you're squirming in your seats a little bit, sitting next to your mom or dad. This is the worst day at church ever. If you're a teenager, the difference in access to pornography versus when I was a teenager, it's like a, you're walking around with a phone. It's like a little pornography factory right there that you carry around with you. Men... And this is not just an issue for men, but if this is something you're struggling with, the access to pornography and sexually explicit material is rampant. You must have some sort of accountability or support or filtering or protection or something to help you. Now, men and women, this applies to all of us. But Because there's no such thing as just, oh, I just look at this because it feels good, or it's just a casual sexual relationship, or it's just an innocent lust. I'm just thinking these things. I'm not acting on them. All of these things are fostering that appetite, which will get out of control. Again, God gives us these guidelines, which are for our good and for the good of our society, and we must honor those, or it leads to harm, harm for us. It leads to harm in marriages. If you're bringing pornography into your marriage, all you're doing is setting up comparison for what you're seeing on a screen for versus what your real life is like. And these have lasting effects. The more you dive into it, the more the brain chemicals, we've talked about this in the past, your brain has a way to rewire itself so that you automatically think something. Why do I automatically think lustful thoughts? Because you have programmed your brain to automatically go there. It can be rewired in a healthy way, but we have to be mindful of what we are constantly feeding our mind. It is not just an innocent thing. And so I want to... I mentioned the teenagers and the young people. If you're still in the room and you're still listening, I want you to listen to me for a minute, okay? Young people, students. The message that you're being told in your world is that sex is the ultimate goal and it is the norm and it's what everybody does 
and every relationship should turn sexual as soon as possible. There is immense pressure from peers and boyfriends and girlfriends to turn the relationship sexual. This is facing our kids at a younger and younger and younger age. If you want to talk to our youth directors, our youth pastors, Brooke and Steve Maxwell, they would tell you they are having, and even our kids department, the, the pressures and all the um, knowledge of sex and all the pressure to get sexual as soon as you can is younger and younger. So young people, look at me for a minute. Sex was created to be awesome and to be in a safe, committed, lifelong covenant relationship with your spouse. That's what it was created to do because it is designed to be in this safe, committed relationship because it is completely vulnerable, right? It is designed to be in this safe relationship. So we are lowering the bar in our culture as what is required for sexual activity. And what I mean is this, you know, lowering the bar is like a, you know, think of the Olympics and you're watching the Olympics and there's the high jump, right? And the goal of the high jump is to put the bar at a height to see who's the best at jumping over it, right? So they run up and they do the, the jump where they go over backwards. Anyone know, trivia time, anyone know what the name of that jumping over the bar backwards is? It's the high jump, but the, the method of it. Fosbury flop, yes, thank you. So you're watching the Olympics and it's the best in the world doing the high jump. Now, how lame would it be if they're like, we're just going to leave the bar super low? Who all can jump over it? And all the athletes are like, I can jump over that. And then there's some guy with two beers in his hand coming out like, I got this too. Yay. Woo. This is awesome. And everyone's jumping over the bar. That's a terribly boring event because you have no idea who the best is because you've set the bar low. Okay, so when I say we are setting the bar low in regards to sexuality in our culture, it means that we need to raise the bar. Young people, young teenage boys, girls, students, raise the bar for what is required for sexual activity. Raise the bar of commitment to marriage. You want to find someone who is committed. You don't want to set the lowest bar possible. Okay, this is your spouse that we are talking about. Anything involving sex and nakedness is completely vulnerable. And you should not be sharing that with someone who you are not completely vulnerable and committed to in every area of your life. Okay, young people? Now, this is your spouse. So if some guy, girls, I want to talk to you for a second. If some guy is asking you to text him pictures or putting pressure on you, he's not interested in unity with you. He's interested in satisfying a desire that he has. So girls, set the bar high for in this area of your life. If a high standard for what it takes for guys to get close to you. Because if you set the bar real low, you just have an endless parade of idiots jumping over the bar saying, all right, let's go. Okay? <laughs> set the bar high. If there is a guy that you have a relationship with that is putting pressure on you and he is not listening to you, you go talk to your father about this. And if you can't talk to your father, you come talk to some of the fathers at this church because we will encourage that boy to pursue godliness in his life. We'll have a whole ministry of encouragement. Okay? Set the bar high. And all the parents said, amen. All the parents are saying that because some of us are like, man, I wish I would have set the bar higher when I was your age. 
Guys, young men, boys, I want to talk to you for a second. You also need to set the bar high. It is not the girl's job in your relationship to maintain purity, okay? There's this thing that gets taught in our world and all too often in churches. Oh, girls, you just need to be modest and you just need to be safe because the boys, you know, they're just so hormonal and they can't control themselves. And if you allow them, they're going to do it. That's garbage, okay? Boys, it is not the girl's responsibility for you to maintain purity in your relationship. You do this. You honor God. You step up and honor that person you are in relationship with, okay? Now, this is not just a student thing. Men of the church, your purity is not hinging on how the women in your life and in your world are reacting, are dressing, are behaving. It's another thing that is garbage that gets that gets preached in churches that women you have to be modest because you know these men they just will stumble and you have to help your brothers in Christ again modesty is great and help your brothers but guys it is not the girl's responsibility for you to stay pure in your relationship with God and with your spouse if you're sitting there thinking well I would have been pure but then that girl walked by and she was wearing that outfit and if that's how if that's the level of devotion in your faith I know it's a battle and I know it's a struggle but you need to step up and have that commitment to purity in your life that is anchored in your faith and your commitment to your God and your spouse, and it is not so easily taken down by the things that you see in the world, okay? So I have, there are some objections, and we're going to wrap up in just a couple of minutes, some objections to what I'm saying that people in our world have in regards to biblical sexuality and sex being in a committed marriage relationship between husband and wife. People will say, well, God made me this way. Why would he call it sinful? Now, this can be any regards to sexual sexuality. It can be homosexuality or gender confusion or just lust or pornography addiction or adultery or any of these things. I have these feelings. Why would God make me this way and why would he call it sinful? God did not make any of us this way, okay? We are created in the image of God, but God made us perfect and holy and in his image. And we talked about this last week. He gave us the freedom to choose sin. And we do that. We are real good at that. And sinful appetites are what lead us astray. Our sinful desires were not put there by God as a way to trip us up. We have chosen sin. We all have biological desires that are not honoring to God. Okay? Every single one of us, regardless of how pure you think you are in this topic of discussion. We all have some biological desire that if we decided to just throw off teachings of scripture and morality and just followed our biological desires would lead us to things that are not godly, okay? We, we all have it. I am not biologically wired to pursue lifelong monogamy and a purity in my relationship with Christy. I'm not biologically wired like that. When I got married to Christy, as fantastic as Christy is, it didn't turn off my ability to notice other women, okay? That is in there. That's And I can't say, well, God, if you wanted me to be faithful to Christy, why, are you ha why do you allow me to be able to see other women in that way? Because we have to subdue desires that are not godly. We all have them, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so for us to say, why would God make me this way? We have chosen, we all have desires that we have to push down in order to follow our relationship with God. You might disagree with that and you might say, well, I don't want to follow God. And that's, that's your decision, right? But we all have that. Another objection is this. 
Why would I want anything to do with God or the Bible if it does not affirm my lifestyle? This affirming my lifestyle is a phrase that gets used a lot. And here's what I want to talk about that. And I'll have people ask me in any sort of uh, issue regarding <coughs> sexuality, people will say, well, what is the church? Will the church affirm me? Does the Bible affirm me? What do you believe the Bible says about this? Here's what I always say and what I'm going to say to you today. If you're looking to the Bible to affirm you, you're looking in the wrong place. The Bible does not affirm people. Now, here's what I mean by that. At no point for anybody do we, you know, walk up to the Bible and say, hey, look at me. I'm following the rules. I'm doing great. And, and God looks down on us and say, hey, nailing it. Perfect. <laughs> Crushing it. Right? If you're looking for the Bible to read through it and say, I have nothing wrong in my life. I am crushing this. This is perfect. That's not what the Bible is for. The Bible doesn't do that with anybody. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this. Talking about the Bible. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the hearts and attitudes of of the heart. And it goes on to say that nothing is hidden in our life. So any thought, any attitude, pride, anger, lust, greed, all of these things, materialism, all of these things, we when we hold it up to the truth of scripture, man, that rings true. It's sharp. It's like a sword that comes in and just kind of cuts away at all these things that we think we're pretty good. And it finds areas in our life that we're like, no, your attitudes, the things that only you think about, the things that nobody else knows about, God sees. The Bible invades our life. It is not there to say, hey, you're doing great. Just keep it up. The Bible is there not to make you happy. The Bible is there to make you like Jesus. And there are times with all of us that it comes in. And it's just like, ouch, that hurts. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have read that. I do have a lousy attitude there. Oh, I do have this area of my life. I do have this part of my sexuality that I refuse to bring into surrender to God. The Bible does not affirm anybody. That's not what it's trying to do. It's not trying to make you happy. It's pointing you to your Savior that we need. Amen? This is what it, it does. So could it be, here's the big question today, could it be that God's design for sex and relationships is actually what is best for us and best for the world? Could it be this uh, view of morality in our culture, it just get, it, it takes a hit. It's like, oh, this old-fashioned view, these Christians stuck in the 50s, this, you know, leave it to beaver sitcom where it's just this traditional family and marriage, and it's always just like, forget about that, right? Could it be that what God designed for human sexuality was actually good for our world? Think about that. If sex was only in committed relationships between husband and wife, what evils in our world go away a lot of them right a lot of them if marriages stayed together and sex was only in marriage divorce broken families no single teenage mothers trying to figure out how to put food on the table no kids growing up without fathers in their home the abortion issue that is certainly a hot button today as we're getting into an election, it seems like this whole election, every commercial is about this. And I would say 
that as we looked at the book of Judges, that a, a culture gone mad with what seems right, I would say that applies to our culture in this topic today. Everyone's thinking, well, what seems right? What seems the right, right thing to do? That whole issue goes away if sex was in marriage between husband and wife. All the society harms of counterfeit pursuit of sex, pornography, the rampant pornography industry shut down, abuse, rape, assault, slavery, human trafficking. Could it be that God's design for sexuality is good for our world? Now, you can object to what I'm saying based on the grounds that you don't like it or that you want to make your own choices, and I understand that. And you can do whatever you want. God gave you that choice. But it's hard to argue that God's design for sex is somehow harmful for our world. I don't see it. Now, it's restrictive. It's inconvenient at times because we have to push down our flesh and these desires that we have that push back against what God is saying is the right way to do this. But those restrictions, as I've said, are like the guardrails on a highway. And within those restrictions, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. A lifelong, in a committed relationship, it's a beautiful thing for our enjoyment, for the strengthening of your marriage. So two important things as we close today. I want to talk to the Christians for a minute, whether you're watching online or you're in the room here. Christians, we have to do a better job at engaging in this conversation with our world. We've got to do a better job. First of all, I've already mentioned, we've got to clean up our own house before we start throwing a lot of stones at the world for how they are treating sex. But we've got to do a better job at engaging in this conversation. Too often, our response to this topic the result to how we are having this conversation is that people see Christians and the church and Jesus as the last place they want to go if they are struggling in this area. I'm not going to the church because they're just going to judge me. I can't go to the church because they hate me. They hate my friends. They hate my family members because we have these sexual lifestyles or these issues or these hidden things that they don't want anyone to know about. And they think the last place I'm going to go is to the church because that is not a safe place. If we are doing that, what we're communicating to the world is the last place you want to go is Jesus because he's going to do the same thing. And that is not the case. We, if we are communicating in any regard that the church is against you or that Jesus hates you, we are doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong, and we got to smarten up. we got to do better at this conversation. I've talked to people who said, I was a, I was a single teenager, pregnant, didn't know what I was going to do. But I knew the last place I was going to go was to the church because I knew, I know there's some people who can help me, but I know it's not in the church because they're going to hate me. They're going to judge me for the decision that I made or what has happened to me. We when we send that message, are opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If what you're doing is pushing people further away from Jesus, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. It's kindness that leads people to repentance. It says that in Romans 2 verse 4. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. The kindness and grace of God that somehow allows people to... They, they can recognize their brokenness and it allows the people to say, oh, that church is 
kind and welcoming and they have a hope in Jesus Christ. Maybe there's something there for me and we're never going to fix people with our wisdom and our fancy words and arguments. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. We've had people's lives in our church changed because we just kept pointing them to Jesus. Just talk. We want to walk with you. We want to support you. We want to read the scripture and just love Jesus and see what Jesus can do. See what the Holy Spirit can do. It's pretty amazing. Second group I want to talk to, and I've talked too long today. Anyone who is struggling in this area or who has struggled, and you're sitting here thinking either this church doesn't like me, this church doesn't like my friends, or I'm, you're feeling shame or guilt about something that you have done in the past or has been done in the past, I need you to hear this. There is grace. There is grace. There is grace. We love you, and we do not just love you because we want to fix you, right? We love you because Christ loved us. And we want you to know Jesus, and we want you to go to heaven, and we want you to know the love of the perfect author of love. You are welcome here, and we're going to walk with you as we all follow Jesus together. As we wrap up, I want to close with just a couple verses later in Hebrews chapter 4, 14, and six, 14 through 16, Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses or our temptations. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of, what's that word? Grace. What's that word again? The throne of what? Grace. The throne of grace. The throne of grace with confidence so that may, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Man, that describes our world, right? It's a throne of grace where Jesus welcomes you in. He says, let's walk through this. Let's start a new story. Let's write a new chapter in your story, in your time of need. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you are what the scripture calls our great high priest, ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. You have experienced life on this earth. You know what it is like to be tempted and yet not sin. And so, Lord, I thank you that you are there as our advocate and our helper, that you have the, the, sent the Holy Spirit to guide us and to, to dwell in us so that in our time of need, we know that you are there with grace, open arms, welcoming us to just continue to follow you. Continue to look into your word and to be more like Christ. So I pray for anyone who is feeling any sort of guilt and condemnation. I pray that your throne of grace would overrule everything else in Jesus' name. Any lies of the enemy that want to heap on condemnation and shame, we pray against that in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a place of grace. You are a God of grace, and we received it, and we want to pour that out on other people. So, Lord, help us to do that, and I pray that you would help us. If we have loved ones who are struggling in this, if we have areas in our life that we need to bring into surrender to Jesus Christ, we do that right now, and we receive again your mercy and grace. Help us to walk that out. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said amen. Amen. Homestead Church, thank you for